Blog Talk Radio. Hello, welcome to the People's Medicine Show. Um, my name's Sean, I'm the host. Let's begin the show with some music. Uh, this is a Bob Dylan song from the old Mama Cast show. It also has Mary Travis and Joni Mitchell joining her. Okay, yeah. That, I was looking at some of the music that I encountered in the past month, and I decided to play that. It's uh, wonderful that Mama Cass had her own variety show, I believe, in the late 60s, early 70s. Wonderful. And it's available on YouTube. So this is the People's Medicine Show. This is sort of a um, one-person show, but everyone is invited to call in. If you want to call in, there's a Call-in number, it's 646-929-2463, and press 1 if you want to speak with me on the air. 
So the show, I talk about herbal medicine, but I also talk about a lot of the other current events, current ideas, uh, things that I'm learning in life. And I'm hoping that we can uh, open up a discussion and have more than one person. I was thinking I missed a couple of the shows. I try to do it every uh, month, and I didn't do it for a couple months because I was going through some, some, some grief. And it was funny because I've often asked for people to help me produce the show, and I was sort of grateful that I didn't have producers depending on me to show up for the months of June and July when I really did not want to do the show. So it's interesting. You know, I am still calling out on people to help me produce the show. If you want me to play some clips or uh, speak about something, you're always welcome to just uh, shoot me an email and show me where to get the clips from. The email to communicate with me is peoplesmedicineshow at gmail.com. If you have PodSafe music, Creative Commons, um, music that you'd like to contribute and have played on the show, you can also send that to me. I love hearing from people. It's great. There's about five or ten people who've sent me communication since I started doing the show somewhat regularly about three years ago. So some of the things I've been learning about is I uh, moved to Hawaii a couple of years ago, and I... Um, been driving uh, rideshare services for the past year, and I've been doing it very consistently on certain days of the week, and I've been noticing that it doesn't make any rhyme or reason, that there's no one day of the week that's always the same, and it just seems like Hawaii sort of runs sort of on a moon calendar, a lot more than other places that I've ever been. There's some days here where just nothing gets done. And just people do nothing. And um, someone sat me down, a, a, a woman who was helping me to learn the native plants and herbs, and she sat me down. She showed me some of the different moon calendars that people use. And there's at least two that different uh, Hawaiians uh, use. And I'll be more than happy to share more as I learn more about using a moon calendar. So for my experience with um, the moons is in July, I germinated some seeds, and I did it uh, about a couple weeks after the new moon. And then in August, I germinated my seeds right on the new moon. And I'm looking at the plants, and it's almost like the plants that I germinated on the new moon are right at the same stage of growth as the ones that were planted a month previously. So there really is some real science, I believe, some verifiable science to using the moon calendar to uh, at least uh, work with your gardening, your harvesting, your drying, your preparation. I was also told that here in Hawaii, people will go and uh, visit the ocean on two or three days during the, during the month. And um, that they believe that those are the days where the, the water would be most healing. So I'm really looking forward to learning more about these things. So one of the things I love that Susan Weed has taught me is about telling and selling. And if you want to talk and teach about things, you really don't want to be selling anything. And what's wonderful about herbal medicine is most of it 
we can just grow in our own backyard. We don't have any needs to, to buy anything. There's um, some things perhaps we don't have a dis we don't have a, a distillery. So if we wanted to use um, a hundred proof vodka, we would have to probably buy that. But even even that uh, to set up a home still in your kitchen is not really that complicated. That there's so many things. And then uh, honey is often used. Oh, I'm sorry. I I seen that someone was trying to call in, and I I. Uh, I didn't I didn't pick up soon enough. But you're welcome to call in. It's uh <laughs> getting getting off track. I looked at the, the call drop and I got distracted. But anyway, selling and telling that I'm learning that you know, I try a lot of herbs that are available as an item of commerce and I have like this compulsion this urge that if I am going to buy an herb, I want to buy more than one from different places, and that way I would get sort of a, a survey of, you know, what's good and what's not. But I believe I kind of stumbled on to a reason why perhaps I want to, uh, if I was going to buy nettles, I would buy it from two or three people and compare and so it's funny that, you know, we often say, oh, yeah, if you need to buy herbs, there's Frontier Co-op, there's Mountain Rose Herbs, there's Pacific Botanicals. So there's three places, that, and you can try them all. And I was listening to a talk on the Psychedelic Salon podcast in, in the previous month, and it was a, a, a talk that Robert Anton Wilson gave, I believe, in 1989. And somebody asked him, some questions about the neuropeptide machines, but I'm, I think I'm going to go ahead and play this clip. And he, it was it was amazing it, because he, I I uh, stopped this clip. That Robert Anton Wilson was just such a big brain, you know, like really hard to, wow, to follow along with him. He right before this clip, he was talking about the parallel universe theory and quantum mechanics, and I was like, I don't think I'm going to clip that. So here is Robert Anton Wilson from 1989, and someone asked him about neuropeptide machines, and he kind of touched on the difference between selling and telling and how once you start selling, you're going to be a little bit compromised. So here's Robert Anton Wilson. It's about a three-minute clip, and I'll be right back. And you have more opportunity to choose which realities you want to go into and which you want to stay out of. And that's the whole purpose for work on consciousness. Uh, Maurice Nicole, who was a physician, a Jungian therapist, and a student of Gary Jeff, said the only uh, reason that consciousness research is so important is because we need to decrease the amount of violence in the world. Mm -hmm. And it will not decrease until people are more conscious of who they are, where they are, and what's going on around them. So in the most positive view, then, we could take the machines to get to a better level of relating to everyone around and proceed beyond it rather than use it to overstimulate like a drug or... Well, actually, um, there was research with rats where they kept pushing a button on a machine that stimulated the pleasure center. Um, but uh, the machines that I was talking about early, uh, the uh, neuropeptide machines, yeah. they, 
they don't work that way. They have a very definitely limiting factor on them. There is, there hasn't appeared uh, anywhere any tendency of people to overuse the machines. You find out that after a few days, your consciousness is staying at uh, a certain level and you have no desire to go back to the machine. And uh, two weeks later or three weeks later, you suddenly decide, uh, gee, what's the matter with me? Oh yeah, I'm feeling kind of glum today. So you take another dose of the machine and you move your consciousness around. And and if you have your brain waves done a couple of times a year, like I, I have been lucky enough to have lately, I keep running into researchers who are very eager to measure my brain. That's a wonderful thing. I keep getting cross sections of my brain. And, uh, I see how, how I'm learning to go into theta more and more quickly mm -hmm. and uh, how to go, yeah. how to move uh, from alpha down to delta fairly rapidly and move from the right hemisphere to the left and so on. And uh, it's obvious that uh, these machines will uh, lose their all interest from me in the next couple of years because uh, I'm learning the machines are teaching devices. And after you learn the lesson, you give the machine away to a friend who could use it. Pet scan your brain next. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. These uh, neuropeptide machines you're, we're, I'm hearing about, um, are those accessible to like the regular Joe like me, or are they just yes. research? Yes. Uh, Omni magazine carries ads for them. Uh, so does Magical Blend. Uh, Reality Hackers has a lot of ads for them. Buy, buy, uh, go, go to a good large magazine store, buy Omni, Reality Hackers, and uh, Magical Blend. Uh, read the advertisements and decide for yourself which one you want to invest in. I do not recommend any particular machine because I don't want to lose my, I don't want to sound like a salesman for some machine company, so I'm just talking about the general area. I have my own favorite, but I'm not going to tell anybody what it is. Besides, there are better ones coming along all the time. I was wondering, Salon podcast has um, an online salon that he invites his Patreon contributors to every Monday night, and I've yet to I've yet to join Lorenzo, but I'm looking forward to one night on a Monday, um, jumping into the online salon where people speak in a in a Skype group, and he often has uh, a lot of um, wonderful people um, invited, um, acclaimed authors and whatnot. <laughs> what not that's kind of a lazy word so um yeah so it's funny um speaking about lazy words and grammar i'd like to speak about uh, something i i belong to a public speaking club and i it's generally the largest one if you've ever heard of it it's called toastmasters and i don't again i don't really want to endorse toastmasters but it's just something i joined and um i believe the the dues are $10 a month or $100 a year where I am, and it's been a lot of fun. I go about twice a month, and when you go up in front of the Toastmasters, they count how many times you say uh and um and different words like whatnot and uh, conjunctive things like and so and different things that, um, that affect your public speaking communications. So one of the topics that I spoke about for about five minutes 
at the last meeting was called the Trivium. And I'd like to speak a little bit about the Trivium. You could look it up. And the Trivium, uh, the word means a uh, dissection of three words, three roads. And the, in the context that I'm using it is the Trivium is a term of the first three of the seven liberal arts. And they are grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And grammar is just selecting words and using concise words and the mechanics of language. And the second part of the trivium is called logic. And much of logic and learning logic is identifying false logic and false arguments and logical fallacies. And if you, if you Google or put a search in for logical fallacies, you'll see there's about 50 or 60. And I heard about this thing about 10 years ago, and I first stumbled upon it by listening to uh, a conspiracy podcast, and they were saying, oh, yeah, there's a power elite in the world, and they're aware of the trivium and how the first three liberal arts are what you really need to be solid in before learning anything else. And it's just a foundation of, of, of learning is grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And rhetoric is what I'm doing right now. I'm communicating. And it's the art of communicating, communicating effectively, incorporating all the things in grammar and logic and sound reasoning and being able to be persuasive. And that is also, you know, what rhetoric is, is persuasiveness. So I wish I, I'm kind of jumping around, though. <laughs> I, was, I wanted to bring up um, that I discovered another podcast, or no, I've been listening to this podcast for about a year, and I wanted to promote them. And they're also um, a Patreon po podcast where they're they're not seeking any uh, um, advertisements. They want to just have just people support them, and it's called Omnibus. And I thought it, and it's. Ken Jennings, who is a Jeopardy um, champion, he's one of the, I think he is the most famous Jeopardy champion. Jeopardy is a game show that's on television. And the other co-host is named uh, John Roderick, who's a famous rock star. He, he's uh, in the band uh, The Long Winters. But they're, it's a wonderful podcast, and they'll pick uh, just some little thing of history that may not be that may not have its own encyclopedia or wikipedia entry and they just expound upon it and they'll go on for about an hour talking about it and they'll go into tangents it's a very enjoyable podcast i recommend it and they just started um becoming an advertised free podcast and they very successful on patreon they're getting a lot of their five dollar per month do donations um, but it is free, and you can subscribe to that if you're into podcasts. I totally recommend Omnibus. So selling and telling. I think I, 
I spoke about that. I spoke about the trivium. I mentioned the Omni the Omnibus podcast. But what was fun was they said Ken Jennings was talking about being a child, and he was like, "I was a know-it-all kid," <laughs> and I and I learned that I could be really annoying and come forth, you know, really. And I and he had to learn not to appear as a know-it-all. And I'm finding out that that's probably the way I'm perceived a lot to people because I, I tend to know a little bit about everything and I, I jump into conversations. And so it is kind of funny that, you know, that, yeah, I'm a sort of a recovering know-it-all. <laughs> but it's, um, I, I just had a lot, I, I, that just made me laugh that oh yeah it's a podcast with two two people who call themselves know it all <laughs> and I think it's just a little bit tongue in cheek on uh, calling yourself that a little self deprecating. So I think I've spoken for about uh, twenty minutes and with a couple of breaks. So I'm gonna take about five minutes and I'll be back in five minutes. If you'd like to call in please call in and we'll talk.
Okay, yeah, I'm back. So I went outside and picked a few salad greens and had a nibble and just grounded myself with the earth and put my hands and my feet on the bare earth and just got more calm and centered. And one of the so I was on this thing that yeah, I'm I'm kind of perceived as sort of a know-it-all and a monoxious at times. And I joined this um wheat free group on Facebook, and I was promptly thrown out of the group because it, I was just using sort of language that was inflammatory. I was making fun of people that were using artificial sweeteners, or I was making fun of the artificial sweeteners, and I was calling them fake sugar and phony sugar, and I was like, what's all this stuff about bloating? And, you know, I'm like, you know, there's a, it's one thing to stop eating wheat and refined sugars, and but there's another thing to be just like replacing it all with artificial sweeteners and I was just trying to um you know reconcile yeah that's the right word I found the right word I was trying to reconcile so it was a challenge that began on August 15th and I was promptly thrown out of the group on August 15th the the 10-day uh wheat uh, free challenge and but what was wonderful was I believe the doctor's name is William Davis, that, you know, sort of the group uh, leader, and his blog is called Wheat Belly, and one of the things on his blog was he he came upon this way to supplement uh, gut flora, making a certain type of yogurt from a specific uh, lactobacillus strain called Lactobacillus Ruteri, R-E-U-T-E-R-I. And he shows these, um, and what I found was uh, really amazing was uh, uh, this has been known about for a pretty long time, the Lactobacillus Ruteri. And if you go into pharmacies, they actually have um, a patent um, medicine for babies with colic, which has this lactobacillus uh, ruteri uh, strain. So I went ahead and took the yogurt recipe that he posted on his um, free blog, and I got a hold of some of these uh, lactobacillus strains. And I guess the one company, I think there's a couple of companies, but they, they actually have patents on some of these strains of bacteria. And I believe this company is from Sweden, uh, ever, manufactured by Everitis Health Services. But I, I posted it on the slideshow for this, for this episode if you want to look at it. So I, I made yogurt for the first time using half and half, and it came out so good. So if you've ever tried making yogurt with whole milk and you really didn't like the consistency, I totally recommend that you try making yogurt with half and half. So keeping with my um, my new trend to be able to you know do two things, I I did a multi-strain yogurt with uh, some Dannon, some Stonyfield, a little bit of this uh, Lactobacillus ruteri, and then I just did the the pure Lactobacillus for carry yogurt, and they both came out absolutely fabulous. And one of the things that I'm really um, 
you know, investigating is this seems to have an effect on the vagus nerve health, and it tends to increase oxytocin levels. So there's certain people that you may not want to be increasing their oxytocin levels. So I believe he, he may uh, outline that on his so I encourage people, if you want to make this yogurt with these type of strains of bacteria, to, you know, do your research. Another one really cool thing that I learned is in the United States, in order to call yogurt yogurt, it has to contain certain strains of bacteria. So there's actually a law saying, you know, that it has to. So if you were going to make this Lactobacillus reuteri, quote, yogurt, and sell it, you couldn't actually call it yogurt. I guess you would call it fermented milk product. <laughs> I don't know, but it, 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 I, I thought that was fascinating. That it has to contain, I think, acidophilus and different specific bacteria in the United States to be actually called yogurt. So that's something I've not learned, but really loving it. It's really yummy. I've been uh, packing it in my lunch and kind of uh, rotating around, sort of like infusion. So I use the multi-strain yogurt and then I'll have some of the Ruteri. So I'm curious to see what, what, what would happen if my oxytocin levels are elevated. Perhaps I will become more lovey-dovey and more um, uh, warm and kind and <laughs> I was listening to one of uh, Susan Weed's uh, episodes with, with Rebecca, and Rebecca was talking about um, taking a nonviolent communication class, and perhaps that's, that's something that I need to pursue because I, I'm getting tired of uh, uh, pushing people away because I'm not using uh, words and I'm communicating in a way that's, that's coming, for, coming out sort of angry or hostile or... <laughs> something I'm just I'm looking at I'm staying open-minded I'm not absolutely sure that I'm coming for coming uh, appearing like an asshole <laughs> but I'm sure at, at certain times I must and I guess we all do so tomorrow there's a Ram Dass movie that's premiering I believe in the United States and it's it's called Becoming Nobody, and I was listening to one of the podcasts last week that was promoting it, and yeah, it sounds great. You know, that Ram Dass is something that his book, Be Here Now, was given to me as a teenager, and just, you know, I don't know who gave it to me, but it's always been really helpful just to... Um, I love the way he has the whole... Um, rap about Asso, <laughs> and I believe that's going to be in the movie, the whole Asso, you know, the detachment, that we're able to have compassion when we're not uh, caught up with pity or sympathy or um, these other things that distract us from truly being with others and being with ourselves. So it is, I guess emotions are fun part of being a human being, having this range of feelings. But oftentimes our feelings uh, get ahead of us and perhaps we, uh, 
We need to do a lot of nothing before we do anything. Um, doing nothing really is on the first step zero of the seven rivers of healing, you know. Do nothing. Just sit with it. You know, really look at it. I've had um, back pain often that has come upon. I'll get a real knot in my back. And I'm like, oh. About 20 years ago, I read a book uh, from Dr. John Sarno, and it was called, I think it was called Healing Back Pain. Anyway, I read like the first 30 or 40 pages, and ever since reading that book, whenever I get back pain, I always ask myself, hey, is there something in my emotional world that I'm not dealing with? Is there something that I'm just avoiding? And more often than not, I do not have back pain for very long. I, uh, you know, I just stop and I ask myself, what, is there something on another level that I'm not dealing with? And it's, it's fascinating to see that physical pain can emerge out of, you know, psychological stuff. Um, and yeah, I think, um, okay, yeah, here's another really wonderful thing. So, yeah, I guess I'm going to start talking about herbs right now, and I'll do, I'll do a little bit reading. So I got an email. I'm on David Winston's email list, and he wrote uh, a pretty expansive book about 10 years ago on adaptogens. And he's coming out with the second edition, uh, Adaptogens, Herbs for Strength, Stamina, and Stress Relief, second edition. So I'll read uh, the note in his email, and he mentions that he's going to add several, I guess, uh, I'll just read it. A note from David. In our modern world, we live incredibly busy and stress-filled lives. Chronic stress, impaired sleep and the resultant elevation of stress hormones such as cortisol have been shown to be an initiator and cofactor for much of our chronic degenerative disease. In addition to stress reduction techniques, healthy relationships, a good diet, adequate sleep, another essential method for reducing stress, stress and enhancing well-being is the use of adaptogenic herbs. For most people, adaptogens are a one-size-fits-all idea. Take any one. They are all good for you. This is absolutely not true. While adaptogens are generally safe, some are stimulating, some calming, some nourishing, others cooling or heating, moistening or drying. To get the greatest benefit from these herbs, you need to understand their energetics and qualities to match the appropriate herb or herbs to the person taking it. This book gives you the detailed knowledge to understand the different adaptogens and their companion herbs, nervines, nootropics, and restorative topics, tonics, so that they can help you live a better, healthier, and more relaxed life. The new edition of this book includes a decade of new research, new case histories, additional herbs such as Ray-Ponticum, Maca, and Shatavari, color photographs of the herbs, almost 100 pages of additional information, and I have updated the book throughout. So Ray-Ponticum kind of just jumped out at me. I was like, what is that? 
And it turns out that Rapopithecum is sort of like Rhodiola. It's not in the same plant family as Rhodiola, but it is in the same climate and growing conditions as Rhodiola. I believe it grows up at 4,500 feet up in Siberia, but I believe it's kind of widespread all throughout uh, Eastern Europe. So I'm going to go ahead and read some monographs about Rapopithecum and that. The scientific name is Rapopithecum carthamoides, carthamoides. So the common name is referred to as marrow root. All right, so I'll read some from WebMD. Overview information. Marrow root is a plant. The roots are used to make medicine. People take marrow root by mouth for athletic performance, depression, endurance, to improve fertility in men, parasites, and to improve sexual function in men. How does it work? Marrow root contains naturally occurring steroids. These components might increase muscle mass, improve athletic performance, or increase endurance. Marrow root might also improve sexual function in men. Okay, so it's I love the way WebMD, uh, they, they go forth with uh, uses, and they say insufficient evidence for athletic de performance, depression, endurance, improved fertility in men, parasites to improve sexual function in men, and other conditions. So WebMD says for their uses, more evidence is needed to rate the effectiveness of marrow root for these uses. Okay, they move on to side effects. It isn't known if marrow root is safe. There is concern that marrow root might increase the risk of bleeding in some people. Pregnancy and breastfeeding, not enough is known about the use of marrow root during pregnancy and breastfeeding. Stay on the safe side and avoid use. Bleeding disorders, marrow root might slow blood clotting. In theory, marrow root might increase the risk of bruising and bleeding in people with bleeding disorders. Surgery, marrow root might, might slow blood clotting. There is concern that it might increase the risk of bleeding during and after surgery. Stop using marrow root at least two weeks before a scheduled surgery. Okay, I'll move on to interactions. We currently have no information about marrow root interactions. Dosing. The appropriate dose of marrow root depends on several factors such as the user's age, health, and several other conditions. At this time, there is not enough scientific information to determine an appropriate range of doses in for marrow root. Keep in mind that natural products are not always necessarily safe and dosages can be important. Be sure to follow relevant Directions on product labels, consult your pharmacist or physician or other healthcare professional before using. All right, so I think um, company Gaia Herbs uh, has a little write-up about Rapopithecum. Native to Siberian Alpine Meadows, Rapopithecum, Rapopithecum carthamoides, is a perennial herb that is commonly called marrow root. It has been consumed for centuries in Siberia and across Eastern Europe, often alongside rhodiola, another adaptogen that hails from the same region. 
The root has been used traditionally to support a healthy response to physical stress and promote normal energy levels. It, is, it also has a long history of use to support stamina and a healthy libido in men and women. Ray Ponticum produces pink thistle-like flowers and is a valued herb in Russian folk medicine and is also used in traditional Chinese medicine. So yeah, that is, um, oh, I see. So Gaia Herbs actually keeps writing. The traditional health benefits, brain and cognitive support, energy support. What Raponticum is used for? Modern herbalists have used Raponticum to support physical and mental endurance and natural resilience. The herb can help promote stamina and can help can support lean muscle mass and healthy oxygen levels in muscles before and during exercise. As an adaptogen, it, it helps support the body's healthy physical stress response, which is controlled by the adrenal glands. In human studies, Raponticum has been shown to support normal glucose levels and it has been shown to offer an antioxidant and immune support. Reponticum has been used to support healthy transitions during menopause. Tony, they also write, view important precautions and put it on a different page. Not for use during pregnancy or lactation, if you have a medical condition. All right. So, yeah, let's see. Uh, parts used, the root, active constituents. Okay, let's look at this. Ectisteroids and phenolics, flavonoids and phenolic acids, accompanied with polyacetylenes, sesquiterpene, lactones, triterpenoid glycosides, and terpenes. So it's a steroid-rich herb, but fascinating that... Um, I would love to read more about people that are transitioning in middle age using Raponticum. This may turn into so products. So yeah, let's see. So the product that Gaia Herbs uses, I'm trying to look at sort of like the measurements of Raponticum. So they use a root extract, 100 milligrams, so one-tenth of a gram. Uh, for their uh, serving size. So, yeah, it doesn't seem like you need much. And it means they put 100 milligrams with 80 milligrams of rhodiola, and then they combined it with 60 milligrams of organic cordyceps, and then seven-tenths of a gram of a proprietary blend of schizandra, prickly ash, Asian ginseng, licorice, eleuthero. So yeah, let's move on. We'll look at uh, we'll look at Wikipedia's write-up on Raponticum, also known as marrowroot, is herbaceous perennial plant from the family Asteraceae, the sunflower family, that inhabits the subalpine zone, 4,500 to 6,000 feet above sea level, as well as alpine meadows. It can be found growing wild in southern Siberia, Kazakhstan, and Altai region, and western Cyan mountains. 
Marrow root is widely cultivated through Russia and Eastern Europe. This plant derives its traditional name, marrow root, from the marrow deer who fed on it. Animal studies indicate marrow root may have a beneficial effect on memory and learning in rats, increasing working capacity of tired skeletal muscles, as well as anabolic and adaptogenic processes in rats. It's high in 20 hydroxyzone, one of the most common molting hormones in insects, crabs, and some worms. 20E can disrupt their molting and reproduction. So that is a new herb that I never heard of. Thank you, David Winston, for your email. And I would love to get David Winston's book, but there's a lot of other books <laughs> I've got piled up in front of me that I've yet to get to. And I've been trying to just eliminate books from my bookshelves before I acquire new ones. I've kind of like just backed up, you know, so that's one of the things that I'm working on in my own life. I'm trying to just have a, a natural flow to get, you know, to release things as I acquire things and not to just be piling, piling, piling things up. So I was, yeah, so let me look at the, there's another really cool thing, so that I found this month. And there was a talk from somebody who knows the insides of Google. And they know all about the algorithm. And a lot of people are convinced that, oh, they're being demonetized and censored for specific political reasons or content that they're sharing. And it really isn't that, that complicated. And I, I thought it was wonderful, this two-minute speech that someone from Google gave. And I, I just totally... It resonates as kind of true that there's a lot of people taking things personal, and there's nothing personal about it with online communication, that everything still really goes on the Internet. There's, if you have something to share, you'll be able to share it, but not often in commercial environments such as YouTube, Facebook, places that are advertiser-supported. So I'm going to play this clip the two-minute clip, and maybe it'll give you a little bit more insight on how people's posts are removed and videos taken down and for other reasons besides uh, violating a copyright. So I'm going to play this gentleman who worked on the inside of Google. I think, believe he was one of the founders or one of the real uh, – I did not get his name, but I'm going to play the clip. I mean, just a little insight on, on, on how, in, in terms of what makes it hard to be transparent and a little bit about how these algorithms work, whether it's, you know, ranking in newsfeed or, or uh, demonetization on, on YouTube. So what they don't have is some sort of ban list of, you know, if you talk about these topics or you use these words, you know, whether if you're an objectivist or you're on the, the right, um, that you're going to fall into this category and we're going to treat you this way. That's not how it works. So what's essentially happening, and for this is true for both YouTube and Facebook, uh, on the, you know, let's talk about demonetization, for example. What they're trying to insulate advertisers from is the risk of their brands being tarnished by controversy. That's, that's the thing that advertisers are worried about. They're worried about the fact that 
if they're associated with something that's considered hateful or hate speech or politically incorrect, that that's going to blow up. It's going to tarnish their brand. That's going to, they don't want to be associated with that. Is that, so, is that a very strange thing, though? Because I don't think, say, before the Internet, if you were watching any NBC mm -hmm. sitcom, you, you weren't thinking that whoever, you know, tied endorsed that particular episode of The Cosby Show or something like that? Yeah, I think people have become a lot more sensitive about it, and they've become much more... They, they become more activist-like uh, about it and saying, like, oh, you're, you're right next to that ad, therefore, you know, we're going to try to punish you and control you in this way. And so w what I've understood from the advertisers, and, you know, I didn't work on that part directly, but I've spoken to folks inside Facebook about this, is that that's essentially their concern. It's not that they have any, you know, they're, they're against objectivists or they're against people on the right. Um, it, it's that they, they don't want to be associated with something that could become controversial. And so the problem for these companies becomes, how do we predict what's going to become controversial? And the way you do that is not that you have a team of human beings who are deciding what's controversial and what's not. Uh, the answer is that you build fairly sophisticated models using artificial intelligence and machine learning that essentially try to predict uh, what's going to be controversial and what's not. Okay, yeah, so that is the answer of how these uh, page rankings and things sort of are determined that there is an algorithm that is able to find out things that uh, provoke controversy. <laughs> so I'm sure there's ways to game it, and to, there's all sorts of things that I'm learning about, that there are professional troll farms. And I believe Barack Obama was the first presidential candidate to employ troll farms on the Internet to help his uh, campaign and candidacy and now it's just rule of every everybody who runs for any kind of political office uses these online troll farms to make controversy in places and cause trouble and allow these um, you know messages on Facebook and YouTube and eat perhaps even Instagram any kind of things that uh, to be silenced. So it is really wonderful to, to be in a non-commercial area where you're not selling anything, to be able to maintain your freedom of expression. Because so, as soon as it, it turns into a commercial venture, there's all sorts of biases that enter into the picture. So that is something that we really have to, you know, it's, it's good just to pay your own way because Facebook is, uh, they're not selling their users any products. They're, they're not charging us anything to use Facebook or Instagram because we are the product that they're selling. And we're, we're being sold to advertisers through these uh, online social media networks. So it's important just to realize that there's just limitations of these social media networks and um more and more just really turned off by it and um turned off by people that think it's a game that it's a lot of fun and they're just so bored with their own lives that they need to live outside it live outside their unhappy lives and and you know cause trouble to others and yeah, it's, it's just fascinating, though, that there really is actual little troll farms, and they are not predominantly in Russia. Troll farms are, are 
they're they're right here in the United States, and it's fascinating to see that there was something in the media over the past few years that oh, these all these troll farms they all exist in Russia, and that's just not true. And I'll be more than happy as I find out more about this to report about it on future future radio shows that I'm going to do. But I find that really interesting how um, online communications are moderated and censored and and it basically just comes down to, hey, if it's any trouble to the advertisers or is it making it less hard to sell to other people, then they're going to censor. And it really has nothing to do with the actual content of what people are saying. There's no actual biases toward content. So, so yeah, so I'm enjoying living in Hawaii. There's a lot of different challenges, and I really am not. I don't want to really make too many announcements because I'm, I'm still so new here and learning so much. But I love hearing stories about other people who've moved to Hawaii and what their experience is. And one of the most famous residents of the Big Island was the philosopher, uh, psychedelic uh, proponent named Terrence McKenna. I believe he passed away in the year 2000. But he came to the Big Island in 1975, and I've always heard that, oh, yeah, he has a huge compound on the South Kona coast. But when he first arrived here, he actually lived, he actually stayed very close to where I live right now, near the south point of the island. So I'm going to play a story. It's a long story that he tells. Someone asks him, um, the, the speech that he made was called, oh, darn, I did not um, keep track of the speech. Let me see if I can look it up on my history. Um, to be able to see it. Yeah, here it is. So this could also be found on YouTube, but it's, it's part of a longer, um, it's part of a speech that I believe he gave called Language and the, about, Language about the Unspeakable. So that's the whole talk, and this was at the very end when, during the Q&A, and I believe during the talk he talked about a very difficult uh, mushroom trip that him and his beloved were on, and they asked him, oh, could you explain a little bit more about this difficult trip? And so he goes on and tells a really cool story about um, tripping on mushrooms in Hawaii, and just I love the way he just paints the way Hawaii is to the first-time visitor. Like I said, I, I work as a rideshare driver, so I often will pick up people who never been to Hawaii in their whole life, and I'll pick them up in the middle of the night, and they have no idea where the hell they are, they're, they're, and I'm just driving them in the dark, and it's a lot of fun that he has that experience, and he tells the story. The first time I came to Hawaii, thankfully, it was daylight, and I, I jumped in a rental car, and it still was, like, amazing, you know, but I believe if you've never been to Hawaii before, the first time you come here will be very memorable. It, it just puts a real big first impression on people. And um, I'm going to go ahead and play Terrence McKenna's story about tripping in Hawaii and getting here for the first time in 1975. So this is Terrence McKenna, and I believe this is from the early 1990s, late 1980s. 
But um, let me say the speech again. Language about the unspeakable, and this is at the very end or in the Q&A session. I'm looking forward to listening to the whole talk. So here it is. It's 12 minutes, and I'll be back after it's done. Uh, when I first moved out to the Big Island in 75, uh, I didn't know anything about the why. I'd never given it a thought. I was here because I needed a place with warm nighttime temperatures because I was trying to grow mushrooms outside. And the choice was Louisiana or Hawaii. And I said, hey, that's not a hard choice to make. So we came to the Big Island. And uh, strangely enough, neither of us knew how to drive. So I had a business partner at the time, and he loved the high life of Maui. So he would come every two weeks with two weeks' worth of food and just leave us up on the mountain over there. <clears throat> then he'd come over here to Lahaina and party for two weeks and then come back. And it was fine. We were in love, and uh, we'd never been to Hawaii. And we started taking mushrooms. And we started taking them fairly often, like every three days. And after about a, uh, after about two weeks of this, there came a trip one night when I was sitting in the dark talking to the mushroom, and it was showing me. I remember exactly what was going on. It was showing me this blue-green planet and saying, you know. This is within 10 light years of where you're standing right now. A, a, a planet with oceans and archipelagos, with ice caps and jungles and uninhabited planets. And I just had this enormous surge of primate greed. It was just like, <clears throat> so I want it. We need it. What a place for a human being. And then I got into this discussion with it about, and I have a kind of acidic approach to the mushroom. I mean, I rave at it. It raves with me. We have long animated wrangles and conversations. And so it was talking about propulsion systems. And I was saying to it, look, why don't you just cut loose with the good? I'm the grower. You can't hold out on me. I, it was, I was saying, you know, show me the ship. And it was saying, if I show you the ship, you'll understand how it works. And I said, that's all right. I'm the grower. You can't, you know, what are you doing? You can't fast shuffle me. Where are you without me? You'd be sitting in a turd in the Amazon if I hadn't brought you out. You know, don't hold back. So this was going back and forth, and about this time, uh, uh, my companion said, I'm feeling very hot. And so I said, well, we should walk outside. And so we were barely able to stand, and shoulder to shoulder, hanging on to each other, we step outside. Those of you who know the Big Island, this was a house way up in the upper reaches of Hawaiian Ocean View Estates near South Point. So we step outside, and she faints. So I drag her to her feet and shake her, and she like comes out of it, and then she faints again. 
and she says, I'm really hot. And I'm like, you know, I'm the expert on psilocybin. And I'm like thinking, this is not supposed to be happening. This fits no profile that I'm familiar with. And I think about the phone 60 feet away inside the house. Who are you going to call? You know, it would take anybody hours to find us, and I'm going to get some some Kona doctor who doesn't even know what psilocybin is, and I'm going to make a huge effort to get this guy here. Uh-uh. It's on us now. We have to solve this problem here and now and in a hurry. And, and she kept passing out. I could not keep her conscious. And finally she just passed out and laid there. And I sat down, and I was fighting panic. I was trying to hold on to the idea that this was not a crisis, but I had the overwhelming sense that she was just dying, just dying right there, right then. And at first I fought this perception because it was unthinkable. And then I like sort of came out of that and said, no, no, sober up. If she's dying, if you can't stop it, then at least make it, honor it, give it some space. So I was just like beginning to form this picture of me just holding her there until she died. And then I figured, you know, I'll sort this out later. But the main thing now is to let this person die with some measure of dignity. So I'm like that. And then like this image forms in my mind of, you know, on, on the big island we catch the water, the rainwater. So in the back of the house there was a big tank of rainwater and there was a horse trough that caught the overflow. And I had this image of this place and it was about a hundred feet away from where I was lying on the ground. So I picked her up. And I remember I was wearing Indian drawstring pants and they fell down around my knees or down around my ankles. So I was like Frankenstein. I was taking little shuffling steps, carrying this woman, walking like a robot back to the horse trough back there. Lay her down on the ground and uh, begin picking up buckets of water and pouring them over her, just bucket after bucket of water, just throwing it on her. And within 15 seconds, it was perfectly clear that I had figured it out. And because she immediately came out of it, she immediately started sputtering and thrashing and digging the water out of her face, and, and I just kept pouring <laughs> and pouring. And then I threw the bucket away and got down on the ground with her in this mud puddle and was hugging her and insulting and so forth and so on because instantly the entire mood of the thing changed. Well, so then, within like 10 seconds, I mean, the forest edge was no more than 15 feet away. And we're miles and miles away from anybody. Suddenly, no more than 10 or 12 feet back into the jungle comes this absolutely ear-splitting peal 
of demonic laughter. Just absolutely spine-chilling. Absolutely the craziest kind of Hollywood nutso laughter you could possibly imagine. I look at her, she looks at me, and we run the house. And once we get inside the house, she's standing there like this. And I say, you know, what's happening? What's happening? She says, ferns are sprouting out of the refrigerator. Ferns are sprouting out of the floor. These forms are flowing across the floor toward me. So I make tea, draw a cold bath, plunge her into the cold bath, and work the cold water angle pretty hard. <laughs> and as I'm doing all this, I, I recall that... Uh, an earlier incident that the, when I when we had first arrived, we flew into Hilo from from San Francisco and arrived just after dark. And my friend, my partner, had preceded us. He met us uh, and drove us around down South Point and back up to the other side of the island in pitch darkness. We drove, as you know, that's a two and a half hour drive. Couldn't see. Fuck all. We have no idea what Hawaii looked like. There seemed to be occasionally a lot of cinders by the side of the road. That was all you could see. So we go to to the to the house and we're exhausted and we've flown and we go to bed. And then we get up at six o'clock in the morning and the light is streaming in. And so we walk out and there it is, Hawaii. And in front of this cabin that we admitted is the lava. I mean, it looks like the moon. It looks like the moon with weeds. Is and then, but the house was on a kapuka, you know, a little island of forest. So then we walked back into the kapuka, just she and I. This, we have literally not been five minutes in forming our impressions of what Hawaii is about. We walked back into the kapuka, and there's this... Uh, and the sun is shining down through the ohia and the haku, and then suddenly there's flute music. This amazing, eerie, piping flute music. And it goes on for like three minutes, then it stops. Then, 30 seconds later, my partner has dragged himself out of bed, and he wanders back to where we are, and he says, Whoa! So what did you think? <laughs> said, whoa, looks pretty good. Uh, who's the neighbor who plays the flute? He says, what are you talking about? He said, well, just, just a minute ago, somebody was playing the flute in the woods. He says, this is impossible. There's nobody for miles. So I said, right, whatever. But then I thought back to that incident, when we had this incident with the screaming laughter in the woods. I went to my Robert Graves Greek mythology and I looked up Pan. Pan <coughs> plays the pipes, of course, but Pan has a special form of laughter which causes panic. The word panic is the state induced by the laughter of Pan and it drives you mad if you hear it. For some reason, 
there in a stretch of Hawaiian rainforest, apparently a Greek god of the Middle Atlantic period had taken up temporary residence. I don't understand this. I can't understand it. But it's one of these anecdotal things that happen if you involve yourself with psychedelics. Somebody else recently told me a story about encountering Pan in the woods uh, on psychedelics in this case. But uh, I don't know what to make of this. I think the world is stranger than we can suppose. I think, you know, it's, it's a mystery and a joke and a game and you just have to keep your, uh, your wits about you. Yeah, so that was Terrence McKenna telling a story about tripping in Hawaii and first arriving in Hawaii. And we all have our own stories. And people often ask me, how did you get to Hawaii? Why did you want to go? And I'm saying, I think when, when I was about 19 years old and I recently moved to um, Florida, and I think I was only in Florida for two or three months, and I was selling newspaper subscriptions in front of a supermarket. And I have conversations with people all day long. And I told someone, oh, yeah, I love warm weather. I was raised in the Northeast, and I want to stay in, Hawaii. I want to stay in Florida forever. I love it. And this person looked at me, and they said, like, I've been all over the world, and I love, I love Florida too, but where you want to be is the big island in Hawaii. And just I, it's so funny that I remembered this conversation throughout, and it haunted me that um, Hawaii would eventually be a place that I wanted to go to, and I just waited and waited for the opportunity to uh, present itself to me to get here. And I'm sure, you know, being broke and not being able to finagle a plane fare to even come here and be homeless, because um, I think I probably could have um, tried to come here when I was younger, but I don't know if I would have been uh, smart enough or had enough strategy. I don't think I was as wise at a young age as Terrence McKenna and his wife were uh, to be able to come. At a, I think they were probably in their 30s when they got here, and I was in my very late 40s when I finally got to Hawaii. So Hawaii just stayed with me from that conversation that, yeah, this is eventually a place that I at least want to see. And his description that, yeah, there's wild people, it's primitive, it's very undeveloped, and um, just as close to untouched land that you'll ever experience. And um, I'm sure we can all go to untouched land, but it would take hours and hours. And I could probably go 15 minutes from myself right now and be on a piece of land that's not been ever walked on by a human being. It just feels that way, that um, it's just so raw energy here. So I really can't call myself an expert. I, I can't wait to be here for five or ten years. And something I once I, I heard that also you know, just keeps me humble and it is um, that like some really large percentage of people like myself who think they want to live in Hawaii, they come here and it's a really large percentage, like 80 or 90 percent of people who think they want to live in Hawaii, they leave within five years. 
So perhaps um, if I make it to that five-year mark, I'll feel more <laughs> sure because at this point it feels like I hope the island doesn't spit me out. And I'm living on the leg of Mauna Loa right now, and if she wants me to leave, she'll, she'll flow lava right over my house. And I'm renting a house right now that is uh, the small ohana of a large vacation Airbnb rental. And I looked up the map of the lava flows, and I believe the lava that this house is built on is from 1909. <laughs> so it's 110 years ago, there was hot lava running down this hill <laughs> on this part of the island. And there's different grades and danger levels, and I believe over near Kilauea, about 80 or 90 miles away, where there was some fissures last year, that is zone four. And they consider where I live uh, zone three. So it's the next to the worst. There is a, it's somewhat affordable to live here. There are paved roads. Uh, there's raw acreage that's, and so, yeah, getting back to how did I get to Hawaii? I, uh, about three or four years ago, I was, I was visiting Denver. Actually, I was seeing Denver for the first time, and I had a, a restlessness about three or four years ago that I was like, yeah, I'm ready to go to a warmer place, uh, more, uh, less, uh, and I was just trying out different places. I think I, I went to Denver, it was a yeah, it was April 2015, because I went to see some concerts here. I went to a festival. Went to, not here, but in Denver. And one of the people in, uh, that I was dri uh, riding the bus with uh, was in Denver for the same reason. They were here to go to festivals and just enjoy themselves for a few days. And we got to talking, and I was saying, yeah, I live, I live up in um, New York State. And then when it gets really cold during the winter times, I, I'm, I'm a snowbird, and I'll, I'll go down to Florida, and I work at a few places down there, and um, I, so I sort of have a snowbird lifestyle, and I'm, you know, and he was like, yeah, I'm a snowbird too. I uh, live in Michigan during the cold weather months, and I, I go to, uh, I live in Michigan during the warm weather months, and then I go to the Big Island. Um, in the winter time. And I was like, no way. That is snowbird level. That is snowbird squared. That is next level. I was like, and he was saying, yeah, I, um, I live in a pretty affordable part of the island where people, you know, there's moderately, you know, because there's this, when you think of Hawaii, you think of um, millionaires and billionaires that live in Maui and Kauai and, you know, um, you know, Mark Zuckerberg buying land that's a half a billion dollars, you know, and things like that. But there's what's wonderful about the Big Island is there's just a diversity. There's very, very, very poor people here that haul water up 2,000 feet, you know, to, you know, by hand. And then there's um, just, a, just a range. And then also I always thought that, it, yeah, it would be Native Hawaiians and basically hippies. But no, there's very traditional Christian, Muslim, every sort of religion here. So the diversity really is so vibrant. It's almost like a rainforest of culture that I've encountered since living here. 
And um, so I got to visit this dude that I met in Denver. And I, I think that the following year, I made plans. I came here. I think it was in March, the first time I came here. And like I told you, I jumped in a rental car, and I was like, no, I'm driving this thing. I'm like, no, no, this is so. And um, just a real jubilation of seeing the place for the first time and just saying, whoa, this is that. And then that whole conversation I had with the dude from when I was 19 years old, I was like, why didn't I listen to him? He knew what I wanted. I was like, I did not know what I wanted when I was 19 years old. But <laughs> I was like, so Hawaii is what I wanted. And I'm a big-time gardener, and I've been uh, gardening a lot lately. And um, I got the opportunity to make my own hashish. And hashish is um, the trichromes, the glandular heads of cannabis flowers. And you shake them, and you put, you get them through a screen. You actually separate it. And a lot of people would call it pollen, but it's not pollen. It's it's actually just like fruity sap. So it falls off the cannabis flowers, and you collect it. And then hashish is pressing this with a, with as much pressure as you can get, and also heating it at a simultaneous level. And I've been watching a lot of um, YouTube videos about hash making, and there's one expert who I am just like, I think is the cat's meow, and his name is Frenchie Cannoli, and he's a Frenchman who lived in Tibet, in India, and I believe he's visited Afghanistan, and he, he lived in these places for five and ten years at a time studying hash making in traditional ways. And he has a number of videos on YouTube, uh, Frenchie Cannoli. So look it up. He, he does this whole workshop, but he's just a true shaman. And I was really impressed with uh, uh, one particular video, and it was called, Does Hash Get Better with Age? So I got to really experience, I've smoked hash my whole life, uh, most probably for over 30 years, I've, and I'm very familiar with what hash tastes like. So when I made my hashish for the first time in the past month, I pressed it. It looks beautiful. But then I, I tasted it, and I'm like, oh, it doesn't have the, the hashish taste that, I'm, that I know. And, and, and um, so there is some kind of um, chemical thing that happens when you age hashish. It, it, it takes on these uh, deep flavors. So I'm looking forward to next August uh, tasting my hashish again and seeing if it develops more of the, quote, traditional hashish flavor. So it really is fascinating. But it's a wonderful YouTube video, and they talk about a lot how, um, yeah, people in Afghanistan, they, they consider it like bad luck <laughs> to use any hashish that's less than a year old. You know, and it, and, it, and aging, it's basically the same thing as wine. It goes one, two, three, four. There's people that have 10, 20, and it maintains really high quality. And I suppose I'm really attracted to it because now I'm in this place where I'm allowed to grow like nine or 10 fully mature female cannabis plants. And it's very difficult to be able to process and preserve without it just turning to mush. And I'm 
speaking to a lot of other people that grow cannabis here, and that's basically the challenge is keeping it um, keeping it beautiful and, and delicious and tasty. So that, I think that's what's led me to, oh, let me find out how to make cashish. And so it'll be a lot less work because keeping uh, dried um, cannabis um, fresh and really aromatic requires that you, you have a temperature-controlled environment that's somewhere under 68 degrees Fahrenheit. So you would need some kind of maybe a chest freezer, and I'm still just working it all out, how to, how to store cannabis. And, um, yeah, it, it, it can probably get really expensive. So I'm just looking at really low-cost ways to do it. And herbal medicine is people's medicine. Anything that I can do in my kitchen, I consider to be herbal medicine. And making hashish is just something I can just do right on my kitchen counter. Um, you know, I have a garbage bag full of cannabis flowers that needs to be uh, dried and processed. Or, um, you know, uh, I could just sift it, press it, heat it, wrap it in cellophane, and put it in, in an aging cabinet. And I'm looking forward to finding out more and more about it. So the other last topic I think I want to just discuss is just being a simple herbalist. And this is the type of herbalist that, herbalism that I learned from Susan Weed, and I'm so grateful that she um, helped me to really take it in and fully embrace that I'm going to be more confident, safer, happier if I work with one plant at a time. This, this really translated itself to... to um, you know, you often hear people call in to Susan's show saying, oh, I want to be able to um, cook two infusions at once. You know, I love the flavor of them tasted together. But then I, I, I kind of got distracted with um, talking about people that I've heard call in and ask, why do, you, why do you have to have it? And I believe it's really coming clear to me that when I, when I make – an infusion of red clover, the way the water hits the red clover at that, at that measurement of a, of a quart jar and one ounce of red clover, it requires a certain amount of surface area where the hot water touches the plant. So that amount of minerals and constituents uh, are released into the water. Now, when, if I was going to combine red clover with another plant, it has a different extraction rate. So the water and the surface area, so it really just turns into like a complicated math problem once you combine two herbs. And it, it's just a, a wonderful label for this type of herbalism, simple herbalism, because as soon as herbs are combined, it turns into a big algebraic equation and no. <laughs> and the I don't know really goes just like it's multiplied by multiplied. There's a lot of I don't knows with working with one plant at a time, and I think we have enough I don't knows. So as soon as we um, start extracting plants all together that extract at different rates <laughs> and just just looking at it as a basic water extraction, I can't imagine using other methods like alcohol and honey and different things that we 
we, we preserve and, and use our herbs with. So um, I think once you have a simple preparation and then you want to just mix them together, I think you're a little bit less in the I don't knows because a lot of times, uh, you know, we'll use um, herbs consecutively, simple herbs made in the simple manner, and we'll just use them all. And I use uh, rhodiola and hawthorn tincture, but I don't mix them together. I'll use them separately, but I'll use both uh, hawthorn tincture and rhodiola in the same day. So those are two wonderful herbs that I love. But what came, what, how it really translated to me was a lesson that I learned this month with peas and carrots that I cooked them together, and I don't recall I, that I ever cooked peas and carrots together before. And uh, so when I got around to eating them, they were both terrible. They both tasted horrible. The peas tasted like carrots, and the carrots tasted like peas. And what's funny is I love the flavor of each of these vegetables, but when they were cooked together, I hated it. <laughs> This is not good. So it, it just really drove home. Yeah, I'm going to just stick with, uh, you know, using one herb at a time, processing one type of plant at a time, and um, just keeping things simple. And even when we're making CBD medicines, uh, we're going to extract the CBD plants separately from the high THC plants. And then when we want to make a specific you know, oil for salves or for oral use. We're going to combine uh, different ratios and, and, and play with it at that point. But uh, the, just depending on what type of um, constituent you want to get out of the plant, you're going to require different types of temperatures and steep periods. So this is the type of things that I'm learning about, just the plants and how they're just revealing themselves to me and just feels wonderful to be able to um, grow these plants and to wake up and look at them on a daily basis and, and have them give me protection, give me strength, give me nourishment. And it's, it's, it's kind of fun to have found my passion in life of gardening and making medicines. And a lot of people, you know, it took me quite a while to, to get here. Like I really, I, I had hints about it when I was younger, but I just did not have the confidence to be able to really pursue this as my main thing. And what's fun, I'm going to just come a little bit around uh, the circle again. I may never be able to make uh, a living from herbs. I'm going to have to uh, make money in other ways. And perhaps I'm not thinking big, but the way I want to teach about herbs requires me not to be selling them and just sharing my own experience and showing people and playing show and tell. And, not, and, and when I do play show and tell with herbs, I'm going to always try to use two different kinds that came from two different places if they didn't come from my garden, because I don't want to be in that situation that Robert Anton Wilson describes. And it's like, I don't want to be, I don't want to appear as a salesman because it will affect my persuasiveness and it will affect my principles. 
And it's just human nature that once we start selling something, uh, we, um, we, our biases um, turn into, you know, an unfairness. And, again, it's just like um, combining herbs and combining selling and telling. The, um, the, the realm of error just really increases when, when, they, are, when <laughs> they are combined. So, you, you know, we have to decide, you know, and perhaps I, someday I, I may give up teaching about herbs to people, but right now this is where the path that I really feel called to, and I'm refining my skills, doing a radio show, going to public speaking uh, clubs, and um, getting getting the time in to be able to become uh, a more mastered uh, storyteller so I am going to call it quits for this month. Looking forward to visiting a place uh, that I've never been to. I try to go to some place once a year that I've never been to. And this year, I'm going to a Cluster Headache Conference in Dallas, Texas. So if you live in Dallas, Texas, and you want to hang out and meet me, I'm going to be there between September 17th and 24th. If you want to communicate with me in any way and help produce the show, do you have contributions that you want me to play on the show? Um, please uh, write me an email, peoplesmedicineshow at gmail.com. So with that, I will say I love you all and can't wait to do it again next month.